The Sanctuary, a community of Jesus people promoting the glory of God in all things to all nations through gospel-centered missional living. Whether it be working with groups in Africa to build orphanages and help rid the continent of AIDS, or feeding the hungry, giving to the oppressed, and helping the hurting who live in our own community, The Sanctuary invites you to be part of a culture of passionate service. You can change your world. Be inspired. Join the movement. Psalm 20 is where we're going to be today, okay? Um, Some songs um, are for when you're down, right? So some songs you want to listen to when you're emotionally down, right? And for whatever reason, they make us more down. I don't know. Maybe they echo the the misery or the pain in our hearts, you know, or they help us express that a a little bit. Um, So some songs are written for us when we're down and some songs are written for us when we're angry um, or when we're hurt or when we're thankful for something. And then some songs are written for us when we're way, way up, right? There's the party songs, right? Um, When you go to a a ball game and your team wins, what do they play right when the celebration is going to come on? The village people, they're going to play that song. Um, So there's just these songs that we have in our our collective consciousness, maybe, um, that are for when we're up. Then there are, I think, other songs that may capture both ends of the emotional spectrum. And um, I think there are certain songs that work in both scenarios, right? There are some songs that work for us when we're up and some songs work for us when we're down. And then there's a couple of songs that work in both places, right? And then there's some songs that we adapt, you know, and at some point in our lives, that was a really celebratory song, but now it may be attached to something a little bit sad, you know, and even though we still are happy when we hear it, we're still a little bit sad when we hear it, right? Um, So I have a video clip. Some of you are, this is going to be like, This is going to be like right down your alley, man. It's going to bring every childhood memory you've ever had. Um, So would you play that for us, please? And listen to this song. Oh, wait, check this out. I didn't know I had two Biggie Small CDs. But one of them is mine. You own a Biggie Small CD? Well, you know, I'd like to think of myself as with it. Yeah, look at you, boy. Six years, you couldn't fight the flood, could you? (laughs) Wait a minute. I know I don't own two What's New Pussycats. I don't even know why we stand here talking. We gotta get packed, man. You know, Will, this is the last time we'll ever live together. Yeah. We've been through a lot together. Childhood to manhood. It's been a good trip been a great trip look whenever wherever i got your back see whenever wherever i've got your back w (laughs) that just doesn't sound right coming from me does it (laughs) sounds great man time for me, man. So if you ever watch that show, you know that that song, right, and that dance, the Carlton, which it kind of became known as doing that dance, it was when things were good, right? This is their last episode. It's the last episode of the show, right? And in the storyline, it's going to be the last time that they've been roommates, the last time they've been basically brothers, and that song gets a little bit melancholy attached to it. 
Um, but the same song hit both ends of the emotional spectrum, right? It's the song that they would use when they were happy and when everything was going great and Carlton wanted to have a little party. And then it was also the song that they used at the end um, that represented, I think, their relationship. So there's a little bit of sadness attached to that same song. And I think this psalm that we're going to look at today, Psalm 20, is one of those songs um, that it's used for when we're up and we want to celebrate and we want to uh, call on the Lord and we want to uh, praise the Lord for the things that he's done. But it's also a, a song that we use when we're way down and we want to call on the Lord to act on our behalf and to hear us and to answer our prayers. And we're just in a hard place, a troubling place. So this is one of those psalms. It hits both ends for celebration and also uh, help for our souls, you know, when we're in a dark and difficult place. So let's look at verse 1, chapter 20, or Psalm 20, verse 1. It says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offerings acceptable. Selah. So it says this is, in, this is happening in the day of trouble. That little phrase, trouble, or the day of trouble, um, a, a more a stricter translation of that word um, would be in the day of your adversary. So the day of your enemy. So it's this idea that there's a day when an enemy comes against you. And so he's like, man, when the enemy comes against you, it's not just general trouble, but it's this idea that, man, when the enemy comes against you, I'm praying that the Lord hears you, Right? That when everything is falling apart and the enemy has come against you, I'm praying that the Lord hears you. So here's what I would say about this theologically, and we don't have time to just kill it and dig into it. But I would say this, even if our enemy, and I'll say Satan or demonic forces, even if they're not behind or, or directly responsible for every bad thing that happens in our lives, every bad thing that happens in our lives, our enemy reads as an open door to come in and attack us. So my theology doesn't allow for every horrible thing that happens in my life to come as a direct result of satanic or demonic influence. But my theology does allow that every time something horrible happens in my life, this, the enemy uses it immediately to come in and to attack me. It's right. It's already a bad day. Something horrible is already happening. And the enemy is on the heels of that to tear me down. Right? So even if he, I'm not seeing a demon behind every rock, Every time something comes against me, every time something happens in life, the enemy comes behind me to attack me inside, right? So you're going to work, you have a flat tire, and you're like, dang, if I just would have had my quiet time today, God wouldn't be angry at me. That's the enemy. Do you understand that? So I'm not going to say that a demon gave you a flat tire. I'm just saying that when the flat tire happens and those thoughts come to your head, the enemy's attacking. Do you guys see that, right? So every time something like that happens, the adversary, the enemy comes against you. So who can pray this prayer right now? I pray that when the enemy comes against you, the Lord hears your prayers. Who can pray that prayer right now? It's on the horizon and maybe you even see it coming. So here's what I want to encourage you with. Some of us are really good for praying for relief. Bad things happen. Terrible circumstances come into our lives, and we, we pray desperately for those things to end or for our, our situation to change or our circumstances to improve. But I do want to ask you this. How many of you are praying like children, like daughters and sons of God against the enemy? And I want to encourage you, right, not to see everything as causative by our enemy, but as everything that comes into your life that's bad, and you're like, God, please change this. Please end this. I want you to also attach to that prayer. And God, as the enemy would come in and attack me, God, give me strength to stand. Bind him. Bind him. Don't let him have influence in my life. Don't let him have a toehold in my heart. Pray against your enemy like you are a child of God. Amen? Because you are. So every time something like that happens, I want to encourage you in your prayer that in the day of your enemy to pray against him. So how much of our anxiety that we feel when, when bad things are happening or life is falling apart, a bad season of life, how much of our anxiety isn't so much about the physical things, and that's true that they're there, but it's also your spiritual radar going off. There's something in your spirit going, man, there's something sort of evil behind this. There's something evil attached to this, right? Does this all make sense what I'm saying? So what I don't want you to do is to walk out of here going that Satan has complete authority over everything in my life and everything bad in my life is a direct result of Satan attacking me. I want you to understand that everything that happens in your life, the enemy prowls about like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. He's an opportunist. Does that make sense? 
So he's looking for an opportunity to come into your life and to tear you down. So that as you go through these things, I want you to make verse 1 your prayer. God, hear my prayer when the, at, when the enemy comes against me. All right? Not just in general times of trouble, but when the enemy comes against me. Man, and I want to encourage you to go to battle in prayer. Go to battle in prayer for yourself and for the people that you love. Because how many times can we just think of situations, family situations, friend situations, when we're praying for their circumstances to be changed, but in reality, there's something spiritual going on, and they can't stand. You know what I'm saying? Like, they can't fight the battle right now. For whatever reason, they may be ignorant toward it. They may be participating with the enemy in some way or another, and somebody's got to fill the gap. Somebody has to stand up for them where they can't stand and pray against the enemy for them. Does that make sense, guys? So this is somebody praying for somebody else. I pray that the Lord hears your prayers when the enemy comes against you. Are you praying that for somebody else? Can you pray that for someone else? Can you, I mean, like specifically, can you think right now of someone who needs that prayer for them? God, hear the prayers of my friend. Hear the prayers of my brother or my sister or my child or my spouse. And when the enemy comes to attack them and lie to them and tear them down, God, hear their prayers and rescue them. Amen? And some of us need to stand in the gap for those people who can't do that for themselves. And then that second part, the second part of verse 1, great prayer. God set their feet on high in a place of strength so that they can stand when they're in a tight spot. That little word for trouble, it can also literally mean like a tight spot, like a, a narrow passageway between two rocks. God, as they're just squeezing through this time in their life, God, put their feet on solid ground. Put their feet in a secure place so that they can stand when the enemy comes against them. Now, that is a fantastic, just verse 1 is a great prayer, man. It's a fantastic prayer. And some of us need to have that uh, acknowledgement and, and awareness, right, of the enemy that is working in our lives and using all these things in our lives to come and to attack us. And it's a fantastic prayer to pray for someone. So look at verse uh, 3. He says, may he remember, and he's talking about God, may God remember all of your meal offerings and find your burnt offerings acceptable. So this is part of the Jewish system. This wasn't anything abnormal. Um, they, this would have been part of the temple worship that they would have had set up. And he's like, listen, when God looks at you, can, may, I just pray that he's going to remember that you have gone to him and worshiped him and called out to him and prayed to him. You know, those kinds of things. Now, it's easy to kind of look at this verse and kind of think, man, it looks like we're trying to purchase God's attention, <laughs> you know, um, that we're trying to buy God paying attention to us at this time. Like we're trying to get God's ear. So how do we actually get the ear of God? You know, have you ever thought about that? Those of us who have kids, can you not tune your kids out? All these parents are laughing. Yes, it's my secret, but I don't listen to them. You know what I mean? <laughs> and they're just, yeah, 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 yeah. And you just, you literally have some button in your head where you can go, and it's just white noise in the background. And I think that we think that God's like that. And somehow I've got to jar God. I have to knock a vase off the shelf for him to pay attention to me. So we do need to ask this question when we're going through our day of trouble and when the enemy comes against us and it feels like it seems like God's not paying attention to me, how do I get the ear of God? How do I get him to pay attention to me? Because this verse makes it sound like I got to go do something religious um, or ritualistically correct in order for God to listen to me. How do I get God's ear? I get God's ear by coming to God his way. Do you understand that? The only way any of us ever get to approach God is if he makes it possible for us to approach him. Because when I approach God of myself, I'm not clean and I can't even live in his presence. I can't look on him. So the only way any of us can ever get to God is for God to make a way for us to get to him right? Old Testament, what was that way? Sacrificial system. You had the temple. You had this whole system set up. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all that stuff that he lays out about how we're supposed to have a relationship with him, right? So this was not out of the ordinary. This is what God already set up. He's like, listen, if you want me to have a relationship with you, you're going to come to me the way that I've told you to come to me, okay? Sacrifices, you're going to have to make these sacrifices, blood sacrifices annually, to have a relationship. This is the way it works because you're a sinner and your sin has to be covered by something. New Testament, how do I get to God? The system's different, but it's based on the sin principle. I'm still a sinner and I still have an issue. I don't make daily sacrifices or annual sacrifices. Jesus made that sacrifice. So how do I get to God? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
through the sacrifice of God, right? The sacrifice of, of Christ that he made for us. And then he says, you come to me through the blood of Christ. You believe in that. You have a relationship with me because of what Jesus did for you. And then there's, I, you love me, right? He says that pretty clearly. And you confess things to me and you repent and just all these petitions. And we do it with confidence, right? Whereas in the Old Testament, you had to be afraid that even if you were just a little bit dirty, you may still have this issue with God and you might strike you down. Or that, There's all these other issues in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, I come to him daily, moment by moment, based on grace. It's complete grace. It's absolute grace. And I come to him on this basis of grace. And Hebrews chapter 10 says that I come to him with confidence. Hebrews 10, 19, that we come into the throne room of God making our petitions known with confidence. Not because I've earned it, not because I've been good, not because I've gone to church and tried really hard, because he made a way for me to get to him. Amen? That's the whole book of Hebrews, by the way, that he made a way for us to have this relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So that's how we come to him. It's not transactional. We need to kind of get that out of our head. I'm going to be good enough so that when really bad things happen to me, God will listen to me. Don't we carry that junk around in our hearts, right? That there's some kind of a transaction we make with God. We're purchasing things from him. That's not the way this works. How do you get God to listen to you? You come to him through Jesus Christ. You're a son and you're a daughter of God at that point, and he listens to you. Amen? Not based on your goodness or your worth, but on who you are through Jesus Christ. Okay? That's how we get the ear of God in the New Testament. All right? Now, the thing that he says that I think that might be most disturbing in verse 3, as much as I want to celebrate these three verses, because I think they're awesome. Verse 3, he says, may he remember. And I'm like, oh my gosh, does, did God forget? Does he, did he forget me? Did he forget what we're going through here? Does he forget where I'm at? And, and I think if we're going to be honest, we've all been in a place where this is what it feels like. Right? God's, God's obviously forgotten me. He's obviously not paying attention to what's going on in my life right now. We've all been at that point probably somewhere or another. So I really want to hit quite a bit on this idea of, of God remembering so that we have a good theology. We understand exactly what he's talking about in our prayers. We can talk to God like this. So last week, we talked about how we forget. That was a big part of what we talked about last week in the psalm that we looked at last week. We forget God's rescue. We forget God's goodness. We forget to praise God. Uh, we forget God's salvation. Um, we have spiritual amnesia. All right? We talked about that last week. So here we have not us forgetting, but this idea that perhaps God forgets, and, and we need God to remember. So again, we're asking all those questions. Does God forget these things? Are we earning God's action on our behalf? Right? Are we going to the, the Godfather, and we're like, he's like, oh, I remember your loyalty. You know, and here's a good blessing for you. You get more fish this month, or you get more whatever it is this month that you need. Is that how this works? I know I've, I've talked to you guys before about a funny, horrible story that, that I'm not going to retell it about. We left, I left, it's me, my mom in Pensacola, Florida. I'm not going to tell the story again, but I forgot my mom in Pensacola, Florida. She's fine. She's at home now. This has been years ago. Um, but she, I left her there, and it's not like I did it on, I didn't do that stuff on a regular basis, but there was one other time that I want to talk to you about. One with my mom. It was with something else. So Jordan was like second grade. He was going to school. We lived in White House, Texas. Did anybody know where White House, Texas is? Well, good for you guys. All right. Um, White House, Texas, right outside of Tyler, little town. And uh, we, uh, Jordan was in second grade. Friday, um, I worked a half day. And then in the afternoon, Mindy went to work. And Jenna was a little baby. So I would take Jenna home and get her to go to bed, hopefully, and take a nap and do the yard work and all that stuff. We were carpooling uh, to school with our neighbor, these kids that lived two doors down. And we would take him to school in the morning. It got real complicated. For a dad, it was a very complicated system because it wasn't like I had every other week or I had every Friday. It, was, it rotated, and there was some funky schedule going on that I was paying zero attention to. Um, and so anyway, there was this one day I got home, and uh, Mindy was gone, and Jenna was probably finally asleep, you know, kind of a thing. And I did all my yard work, and I'm just hanging out. We had one of those cruddy pools in the backyard. You inflate the top ring, and you put water in it, and it rises. You ever had one of those little junky pools? I had a little pool. I was done. I jumped in there. I was just cooling off and everything. And I get a call 
pre-cell phone, so I was smart enough to have our house phone out by the pool. Kudos for me. And uh, I get a call from my neighbor, Leah, the mom, um, and she's like, hey, I just got a call from the school. And I don't remember anything else she said. I just like, oh my gosh. It's probably 3.45, maybe almost 4. They, he'd been there like an hour and 15 minutes. I don't know why anybody didn't call before that, okay? Just want to, that's my disclaimer. Um, <laughs> but uh, she's like, the boys are at school and a counselor called me. That's, this is Leah. And I just hear blah, blah, blah. And now I'm saying blah, 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 excuses, blah, blah, blah. I'm dumb, blah, blah, blah. You know, that kind of stuff. And I could be there in two minutes. So, man, I jumped out, picked her up. She was asleep, threw her in her car chair, uh, and go get into the, the van, and we drive over to the school. There's Jordan, our little neighbor kid down the street. And I was like, okay, hey, boys, this is awesome. We're going to Dairy Queen today. It's going to be a good afternoon. <laughs> and we're eating Dairy Queen. Leah's, I'm already busted with Leah, but again, it's pre-cell phone day, so this one still doesn't know. So I'm like, hey, listen, we're going to talk to mom about ice cream and Dairy Queen, and the ball pit, and everything before that didn't happen, okay? And so um, we get home, and Jordan was cool about the whole thing. Like, he was seven, you know, and he didn't cry at all. And, you know, just the whole, he's just cool with the whole deal. And we get home after doing the whole deal and, and all that, and, he, and he's seven years old, right? And he comes, this was, what, two and a half years after he gave up a pacifier, you know? So he's just this little kid seven years old, and he comes up to me, and he says this. He says, Dad, thanks for remembering me. And he's totally serious as a little seven-year-old kid. And he goes, Dad, thanks for remembering me. And for him, it was done. That was it. We went and played Nintendo or basketball or whatever we were going to do. So I went pretty quickly from being the forgetful, uh, you know, not paying attention, self-absorbed, clueless dad to being the remembering Savior. <laughs> all like that, you know? And I think sometimes we have in our head, that's what God's like. God's this forgetful dad. He's this self-absorbed person who's running the universe, by the way. <laughs> and he forgets about little old me. And I'm just left on the curb wondering what's going on. Don't you feel like that sometimes? If we're going to be honest, haven't we all walked through a period of life where this is what it feels like to kind of have dad and father, God, like this? So we see this idea of God remembering several times in the Bible. Many times in the Old Testament, that language is used about God remembering. Uh, we, we remember about uh, Genesis chapter 8 when it talks about Noah. And it says this. He's in the ark already. So you can imagine how whatever, whatever a great miracle it was, I would think on day 30, 24, he's like, God, this was a bad idea. <laughs> These animals stink to high heaven. This, I see water and water and water and water and water. There's no way this is ever going to end. They're being rocked about by all the, the waves and everything. And, you know, he had to at some point felt just abandoned and forgotten. And they send out the little birds to go see if there's land anywhere. And they keep coming back to the ark with nothing. And there's no land and there's no way for this to stop. He had to feel trapped, which is ironic probably in the very thing that God used to save him. At some point, it became the box in which he thought he was going to die with all of these animals. And it says in the Bible that God remembered Noah and his sons. We felt often, maybe in our lives, that God doesn't hear us, and God doesn't know where we are, and he's not listening to us. And like a forgetful dad, he's forgotten about us. And the Israelites felt the same way. They're in... Uh, they're in slavery for 400 years to the Egyptians. And not just in slavery, but the, the scripture points out that the Egyptians were exceptionally cruel taskmasters. So they're in, in slavery to these taskmasters. And Exodus chapter 2 verse 24 says, God remembered his covenant with Abraham. What does it mean that God remembered? That's what we really want to understand. What does it mean when it says that God remembered the Message Bible says it this way. It says, God listened to their groanings. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw what was going on with Israel, and God understood. That's a really great way to understand what it means that God remembered. God listened. God saw. God remembered. God understood. Numbers 10. 
Acts 10, Revelation 16, all these verses and passages talk about God remembering his people. So we're still like, man, somebody interpret this for me because I don't want to be around. I, I mean, I'm not really interested in a God who forgets things, to be honest. You know what I mean? Right? I don't, I don't want to follow a God who forgets things, right? I want to be in a relationship with a God who is the biggest God that I can ever possibly conceive of and even more than that. And that God doesn't forget stuff, amen? That God remembers things, all right? So how do we understand this idea, all right? First of all, I want to say this. Again, I want to reiterate, some of you are piously hearing me talk about this and you're like, I would never think that God forgot me. That's just because you haven't been through the ringer yet or you're not being honest about things, okay? Um, so I don't really feel bad about saying that I felt that way before because I think it's very honest. Secondly, I'm going to use a big word here. I don't know another word. Let's, let's be careful not to give God human characteristics, okay? Let's not interpret God through us. Let's not look at God through the lens of mankind and assume that he shares our qualities. You need to understand that whatever characteristics and qualities we have, we share with God and not the other way around. We are sad representations and fallen representations of a perfect God, okay? So let's not reverse this thing and say, well, because man forgets and doesn't remember things, God must forget and not remember things. It doesn't work that way. So I'm going to use the word, don't anthropomorphize God, right? Don't give God human characteristics. God does not give, or let's not give God human traits and interpret him in reverse. All of our traits have come from him. God doesn't forget. His knowledge is perfect. His understanding is perfect. His recall is perfect. He is not subject to the same shortcomings that you and I are. Third thing, I prefer to think and I believe that the right way to read this language from the scripture is that it's from our perspective. It's like in another psalm where David says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? God never forgot David, right? But again, in our perspective, in our lives, in our feelings, in our circumstances, in our perspectives, this is what it feels like. It feels like... God has forgotten me. If God really forgets us, we should all just check out now. If God has the capacity to forget any one of us, right? He is not a God worth following. So we should just check out of the deal right now. If our theology is going to be defined by how we feel when we feel like God forgets us, and that that must be true, man, then we should just be out of this. So we've got to settle with ourselves right now that God never forgets us. You need to write that down maybe. God does not forget me. God never forgets me. And maybe that's all you take out of here today, and that's great. God never, ever forgets me. Here's the way I would read this throughout the whole uh, witness of Scripture, if I'm really trying to understand what it means that God, God remembers. I think... You have this person who's going through a difficult season, and it feels like God's, for, God's forgotten them. And then suddenly, God begins to move. The bird that comes back to Noah with a little twig in his mouth, Noah's like, oh my gosh, God remembered us. So in, in, in our human perspective, it's when we begin to perceive that God is moving on our behalf. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean that he wasn't the entire time. It's just when my perceptions begin to kind of catch up with what God's doing, where he pulls back the veil a little bit to show me a little bit of what he's doing. Then it feels like, oh, he's remembered. Well, he never forgot, right? I'm not privy to everything that he knows and everything that he's doing. But sometimes he opens it up just a little bit for me to see. And so now I see that God is doing something. He's revealing to me what he's doing. So from our perspective, he's remembering me. I get a glimpse into what he's doing and how he's going to manifest that. And I say, oh my gosh, he remembered. So unlike the forgetful dad, I would look at, here's another, a better analogy maybe. It's more like a husband who knows that his anniversary is on June the 1st, and he lets the clock strike 11.59 p.m. before he starts the party. Did he forget or did he have a plan in place that he didn't reveal to anybody until 11.59? That's God so many times, isn't it? Right? He didn't forget anything. He just chose not to bring you into the party plans. <laughs> you know? And he's got this whole thing working behind the scenes. And at the last minute, he goes, here, let me show you a little bit of what's going on. At no point did he forget the entire time he was working to prepare for you. And we need to think of God like that, because that's what I think Scripture tells us about God, is how he's working behind 
the scenes to reveal at some point his surprise love and care for us. And he's going to show us that at some point. So in the middle of that stuff, we complain to God and we cry out for God to remember us. We cry out daily and moment to moment for salvation. And then he rescues us. And listen, what I want to say is we're going to talk about it. He always rescues us. Always. I I will say it that confidently and that completely and that absolutely. God always rescues us. Always. Okay? Some of you are going to argue. You're arguing with me right now. No, he doesn't. I have a friend who, and he didn't rescue them. We're going to come back to this, okay? But you've got to settle this in your head, okay? Either God doesn't always rescue his children, or he does. God doesn't forget anyone, or he does. Those are your options. You understand that? You serve a God who forgets you and doesn't rescue, or you serve a God who remembers you and rescues you. One of them matches up to what Scripture says. Another one matches up to how I feel. I'm not going to go with that one, you know? I'm not going to allow myself and my theology to head down that path because it's not a scriptural path. So whether that's in divorce or through divorce or in childish, childlessness or through childlessness or financial ruin, through financial ruin, to death and through death, God always rescues, always. He never forgets. He always remembers. Amen? Do we get that? Okay. So we're going to continue to plow along. Look in verse 4. May he grant your heart's desire. We love verse 4. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your victory, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Man, we just love those verses, right? Um, So let's talk about those a little bit. These verses sound almost like um, David is campaigning for God like Pedro in Napoleon Dynamite, right? If you vote for God, all of your dreams will come true, right? And it sounds like this campaign promise, doesn't it? Like uh, David stumping for God somehow or another. So I want to start with this idea that you get all of your heart's desires because some of us just really, really love this idea. Okay, if you're gonna, you have to read things in context, right? You have to read things in context of this chapter, chapter 20, the the context of the book of Psalms, and then the context of Scripture, okay? If you read all the other passages that talk about praying to God and making our uh, our petitions known to Him and our desires known to Him, there are qualifications that come along with that, which we're not going to get into this morning. But there are things that Scripture says pretty clearly. You've got to line some stuff up with God while you're talking to Him, Right? You understand that? So unicorns and rainbows, God's not, you know, he's not obligated to fulfill those prayers just because you pray them and your heart really desperately wants them, okay? God's also not obligated to fulfill your prayers for everything you want in this life. That's not his obligation. It's not what he's obligated himself to. We need to remember that also, okay? So there's these qualifications that are attached to these ideas of your prayers being answered, uh, your heart's desires, all that kind of stuff. I think what I want to really challenge you with this morning, two things. One, what are you praying about? So scripture tells us to pray for our daily bread, right? There's nothing more simple than what am I going to eat today, right? So scripture says, pray to God for that. Pray that the Lord provides for you just the basic necessities of what you need. Some of us kind of stop in this world of the things that I think I need. And our prayers consist mostly of the things in life that I think I need to be fulfilled or to make it through the day, whether that's food or a relationship or whatever else. I want to kind of challenge us with, are we praying bigger prayers? Now, for some people, what you're going to eat today is a big prayer, and I totally understand that. But for the majority of us, we've moved past that, okay? We're going to thank God for the Hershey's bar in the, you know, the pantry. We're going to thank him for the five cereals that we've got up there. And we're going to ask him almond milk or skim milk. You know, we've got plenty of food to eat. That's really not an issue for most of us. So I just want to ask us, kind of across the board, are we praying big prayers? So as you're thinking about, I want God to give me the desires of my heart. I want him to fulfill all of my petitions. I would then come back and challenge you with, what are you praying for? Are you praying for big things or are you praying for little things? Little things matter, and I understand that, but at some point, don't we mature? Doesn't our life sort of move past some of those little things? And we should be looking at, 
a big picture of life and a big picture of people and a big picture of circumstances. And we start praying big prayers, right? Right? So it's God, not, don't let my teenager go out and get drunk this weekend. We're going to move a little bit past that to God, make my teenager a person who loves you with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Keep them from being drunk this weekend. But God, move their hearts to desire you above everything else, to love you more than they love anything else. Do we understand that? I'm not belittling in any way the need for daily bread with your teenagers because they're crazy people, okay? So I'm not saying don't pray for your teenagers for the little things in life. I'm saying are your prayers just stuck in the material and in the things you can immediately see? Or are we praying big, big prayers and then saying, God, fulfill my prayers? There's a big one I got. And asking him to do that. So let me give you, for instance, there's a man named Henry Viscardi. Born in the early 1900s, and uh, some of us, I mean, my dad was physically handicapped, and some of us have some uh, family members that were handicapped. Man, if you go back 40 years in America, being physically handicapped was exceptionally difficult. I mean, for the history of mankind, actually, if you think about people who were born with physical handicaps or handicapped later in life, just going through life was brutal. It was awful, hard. Henry Viscardi was born with no legs, had two stumps. Goes throughout his early life, very, very intelligent person, very, very smart man. He ends up uh, with, with Eleanor Roosevelt. He ends up big starting uh, a, a foundation that ultimately became responsible for what we now know as the ADA, the American with Disabilities Act, and some other things that have transformed how we see people of special needs today. It's really just amazing. His name is Henry Viscardi. There's a school that's named for him up in the, north, uh, the Northeast. Listen to what he said. Man born with no legs. He, did, he got prosthetics after World War II when his, his stumps were wearing out because he was using them to try to get around. He played football and basketball in high school in the 40s, in the 30s, man. And his stumps are wearing out. A prosthetics company, which think whatever prosthetics were in the 1940s and 50s, I mean, I don't even know what they would have been made out of, you know, gave him legs. He went from three foot six to five foot four in one day. <laughs> they gave him legs to stand on as a young man. And he wanted to transform people's lives. Listen to a prayer that he wrote down. He said, I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of others. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I, among all men, most richly blessed. I got my legs, and I don't think like that. I have so many opportunities in life, and I'm so sad about everything I don't have, and how hard life can be, and why isn't God listening to my prayers? At some point or another, man, I pray big prayers. And you got to know that this man who revolutionized America, and I really can't overstate that, he revolutionized the way that our culture works with people who are handicapped, changed our government, that this man prayed big prayers, right? Big prayers. But he also had to pray, God, get me out of bed. Just get me up today. Just give me something to eat. Give me someone who can help me get from here to there. But God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray big things too. Does that make sense, guys? And at some point or another, somebody's praying along with him. Man, I pray that God hears all of your prayers. I pray that God answers all the petitions and the desires of your heart, even if they're a little misguided. I pray that God hears everything that you have to say to him. Man, that's amazing, isn't it? We want to pray like that. Big, big prayers, and that God would hear those, right? So that we can go do the things that he wants us to. He says, God, that he would fulfill all of your petitions. God wants us to pray and to talk to him about everything. So some of us get all hooked up on 
Does God hear every prayer? Does God answer every prayer? And our faith just fumbles and stumbles and falls apart on those questions. I think God's more concerned with, you didn't spend any time with me today. Right? So I've got two kids, Jenna and Jordan. I'm not so bummed out if Jenna comes to me at the end of the day and she's like, I wanted ice cream, Dad, and you didn't buy me ice cream, and my car broke down, and you didn't help me fix it, and the oil needs to be changed. God, Dad, you didn't do any of that stuff for me. I'm more upset when the day's done, and she comes to me and says, hey, good night, and gives me a hug, and that's the only time I saw her during the day. God is much more interested in me talking to him. Does that make sense? than me getting everything that I want. I'd rather hear her complain about her life than not hear from her. And I really think God's kind of the same way. I think Jesus makes it very clear that that's what God wants from us. Just talk to me. Right? Just speak to me. We can talk about what you want and what you need, but just spend time with me. God wants us to take everything in our lives to him, to talk to him about everything. But I just would again want to challenge you for something bigger than that, are you just praying these big things? God, hear my prayers. God wants us to pray about all of life, every bit of life. But somehow during my prayer time, it's kind of like the Lord's Prayer. You get a little bit in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread, but lead us not into temptation. That's a big prayer, right? Even in that Lord's Prayer, you go from something just daily menial, get me through the day, but man, God, I'm going to go face this big, ugly world. Lead me not into temptation. Help me to forgive people who hurt me. Those are big prayers, right? Amy Carmichael, Christian missionary. She had neuralgia. Anybody know what neuralgia is? It's kind of like neuropathy. Neuropathy, anybody? Okay, I know some of us know what neuropathy is. Neuralgia is a, uh, a, nervous, a nerve disease. Your nerves are, are falling apart inside your body, and you get extreme pain in your legs, feet, hands, and then ultimately you'll lose use of your uh, appendages, actually, for the most part. She actually got it very young. Struck her when she was a young lady. She's in England. She heard uh, a man, a missionary in India, talk about being a missionary um, in, or sorry, he's a missionary in China. She heard him talk, and she's like, "Despite my handicap, I want to go serve the Lord." She was rejected by a missionary society. Joins another one, sent to India. Some of us have missionary friends, and they come home every year, 12, 15, 16, 18 months, something like that, for furlough. She served in India for 55 years without furlough. Never went home. Single lady, 55 years in, in India. Here's what she, she, she wrote a poem, and, and if some of us are into poem, poetry, and this is excellent, and I would encourage you to read her poetry. She, it's beautiful. It's called The Flame of God. She said, Give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope that no disappointments tire, the passion that will burn like fire. Let me sink not to be a clod. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. That's a big prayer. And you're like, Amy, you should be praying for neuralgia. You should be praying that God heals you, Amy. She's like, I'm praying that God uses me as the fuel for his fire, and he burns me up to do his work. What? Man, are we praying big prayers? Can we come alongside you and say, God, listen to every prayer he prays. Listen to every prayer she lifts up. Hear every petition. Give them every desire of their heart. Big prayers. Look in verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. In the day of trouble, they're asking for victory and answers and strength. The day of the enemy, the adversary has come, and they're praying for all these things. And it shifts. This, this psalm takes a really hard right turn here. And, and the psalmist, somebody, stands up and says, I'm really sure that the God, God saves. I, I really know that God saves. Now I know that the Lord saves his people. So this would have been a worship song, so I don't know how awkward this would be. But they're singing this in a congregation, and people are making this their praise song. And it's literally, there's like a separate mic over here, and somebody rushes over to it and says, Hey, now, I know the Lord saves. It's almost like open mic night, you know, testimony time. And somebody brings this testimony to the floor of this worship area and kind of proclaims that now I know that God saves. Why is there this shift here? I don't want to spend too much time on it. This is, 
Some people have interpreted this psalm as being about Christ, and you kind of really got to get into some of the imagery here, but that it's about Jesus. Um, so there are people that are singing the song. The beginning of the, 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 uh, the psalm here, there's a congregation, there's a group of people who are singing the song. Then a single person stands up and says, now I know that the Lord saves. Well, who is that? In their time, it would have been the king. That's the king stands up and says, now I know the Lord saves. Well, David and the kings, all they did were, they were just foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. So I just want you to kind of insert Jesus into this psalm here, me and you. We're saying, God, hear our prayers. God, listen to us. God, give us strength for the battle. God, help us when our enemy comes against us. And Jesus grabs the mic and says, hey, I know that God saves. So just kind of have that in your head as we go through the rest of this deal, right? That Jesus himself is standing up testifying to the fact that God saves, right? So you have this progressive idea in Scripture. In the Old Testament, you have these ideas that God gives us material. He gives us people material things, and there's, in, there's physical enemies and battles to be fought, you know. Um, and, and you move from those kind of things into the New Testament, where all the discussion in the New Testament is about eternity and sin and your soul and death. And the same kind of imagery is used in the New Testament to talk about those things. There's this progression that goes from the old with the material into the new, into the spiritual, and into the eternal. This is Jude chapter uh, 1. There's only one chapter, but Jude 20 to 25. Listen to what he says. He says, But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. That's big. That's eternal work, right? We, we, we're moving, somehow or another, the, the concern of Scripture moves from this Old Testament idea of I've got these physical enemies who are against me, give me food to eat, to God sustain me in every way possible through eternity. And that happens through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus stands up and says, I know God saves. I know that he does. So that's kind of the picture that we get here. Now I want to get into that idea of knowing when we were kids, we used to have our student pastor, student minister, he would say, do you know that you know that you know? Do you know that you know that you know? Do you know? And not in a weird way or a super spiritual knowledge kind of way, but do you know? How do you know anything? First of all, information. There are some things you know because you read it in a book or somebody told you a fact and that fact just kind of gets lodged in your head somewhere. So there is scriptural knowledge. And I just want to ask you, do you know? Do you know that Jesus said to you, I will never leave you or forsake you? You know that? Some of us don't. Some of us, that's like a revelation. Wow, God really said that? Yeah, Jesus actually said that. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So now you know that. Do you know that Jesus said, you can overcome the world as I have overcome the world? Some of us feel like the world's over, overbearing, overwhelming. I can't, I can't deal with this. This is too big for me. And Jesus looks at it and says, I overcame the world, and I've given you the same power to overcome the world. Did you, did you know that? Now you know that. Do you know there's a spiritual armor that we have to put on daily, if not moment by moment, that helps us, that empowers us to get through the battles that we fight? Did you know that? Ephesians chapter 6, now you know that too. Did you know that Satan's already been beaten? It feels like he's got the upper hand, doesn't it? It's ugly. We um, had a neighbor that passed away Friday night, and we were over at their house and just loving on them, trying to. And um, not only is he's passed away, and, and his family is just wrecked by it, of course, and um, the brother-in-law does business in Nicaragua and El Salvador, and they're watching newscasts, and he just looks at us and he says, man, that's nothing. In El Salvador, they killed 1,500 people last month. That's just a one month in one of these countries. Man, we just live in a dark world, don't we? And it looks like so often that Satan is winning. 
You know, we look at our own family sometimes and we're like, man, he's winning here. He, he's he's, he's going to be victorious in this battle. But did you know Satan's already beaten? Did you know that? Like, if you didn't know that, know it now. That is a scriptural truth. Satan has already been beaten. And either he's too dumb to know it, okay, or he's dying and he's just hurting as many people as he can on the way out. But he's already been beaten. Some of you needed to know that. You have the power to overcome sin and overcome your flesh. Did you know that revenge is not yours? It's not yours to take vengeance on people that hurt you. And that forgiveness is a grace gift that you can give to somebody else. And that bitterness is a root of evil. And that you give yourself to the enemy. You give him a toehold when you hold on to bitterness. Did you know all that? That's scripture. That's all in scripture. So there's stuff you can know just by knowing it. Information, right? Here's another way that you can know something. You got to be convinced of it that you know, right? You're convinced of it in your soul. You're convinced of it in the deepest part of who you are. No matter your feelings or your circumstances, you know it. So how do you know something like that? It's not just information, right? What model year was the DeLorean that was driven in Back to the Future? Bing, I know you knew that, right? So some of us who know that, okay? That's information. But what do we do with it? How do we become convinced of it? How do you know anything in life? You study, you learn new things, and then you apply that knowledge to real-life situations, and you experience the truth of it yourself. For instance, at Christmas time, does anybody have those, those uh, Christmas lights, and you don't plug them in? They have a battery pack. They all have those evil, tiny little screws in them. And they're all Phillips heads. All of them, right? And they're little bitty little guys, right? And then they get stuck and they break the plastic while you're trying to take them out and everything. If you try to take a flathead screwdriver and use it in there, it ain't going to work. If you have a flathead screw head and you try to use a Phillips head in that, it ain't going to work. Now, some of that is head knowledge, and then some of it becomes very practical knowledge, right? The minute you try to do it, you're convinced this is a bad idea, (laughs) right? I knew that I needed a Phillips head. I tried it with a flathead. Didn't work. You've experienced the truth of that knowledge at that point. When you try to take the Blu-ray remote and use it on the TV, have you ever picked up the wrong remote? And you're like, why won't the TV come on? <laughs> wrong remote, right? We have fan remotes. Now, why is the fan coming on? I didn't pick up, you know, all that kind of stuff. We don't even know what that, again, I know this is the right remote, but then I experience it when I pick it up and use it that way. Loud words, Versus apology and humility. I know that loud words don't work. But then I experience it. And I understand that apology and humility works better here. Then I experience that. And it becomes true. Does that make sense to everyone? There's head knowledge. And then you apply that knowledge and it becomes experiential truth, right? Where are you at right now? And I mean your tight place. We'll go back to verse 1. Where's your tight place? Where's your hard thing? It's your day of trouble. The enemy has come against you. What is that? If you know what it is, I'd kind of encourage you to write it if you've got a pen or paper. Maybe just write it down or maybe a note in your phone. You can just make a note in there. This is my tight place right now. This is my hard time, my day of trouble. My next question for you is what do you know about that? And and maybe more specifically, I want to ask, what has God said about that? So what do you already kind of have in your head? Or you need to go research it. Man, I don't know. I don't know what God would say about that. Go look. He has a giant book, and I'm sure he's talked about it, okay? Go look and see whatever it is that God has said to you. And I want you to write that down next to it, too. Then here's the big one. How can you apply what you know to that time of trouble? Some of us are so bound and controlled by the troubles in our lives. And we have knowledge over here, and we have trouble over here, and we never bridge the gap to take what we know and apply it during our time of trouble. What's your tight time? What's your hard place? What's the adversary? What do you know? How can you apply what you know to that situation? If I'm not convinced in my soul, if I don't know that I know that I know that God is all-powerful, that God is all-good, that God is all-able, that God is all-knowing, I will not believe it and I will not act on faith when the day of trouble comes. So I can know these things, but then i got to know these things. Then I have to apply them when the day of trouble comes my way. Then I've experienced the truth of them. And they get burned into my soul at that point, you know, kind of branded 
into me. How else can I know that I know that I know that God will rescue? We talked about that a second ago. Jesus grabs the mic and he says, the king, I know God saves. I know God saves. How can he say that? How could Jesus be the final witness about God saving me and you? Because God saved him. And you and I would look at that and go, no, he didn't. He was tortured and he was rejected and he was an outcast from his own family and he was treated like scum. He was killed like a criminal. God didn't rescue him. He didn't stay there. That wasn't the end of his story. He rose from the dead. God rescued Jesus. Amen? Do we understand that, guys? If that's the story of Jesus Christ and I'm going to follow in his footsteps, shouldn't I think or maybe even assume that at some point or another my story is going to reflect that a little bit? That there will be times in life that for a greater thing that I may not even understand, God's going to let me walk through horrible situations and he will rescue me? God always rescues. Always Maybe not in my time frame and maybe not the way that I want to. Always. God always, always rescues. And I know that he will for me because what has been done for Jesus has been given to me. I'm not going to spend, we got to go. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. The reason these people are praying this stuff for their king, all these prayer requests are for their king. And the reason they're praying these things for their king is because they understand that if he goes and wins the battle, they win the battle. That whatever the king comes back with and spoils, he gives to the people. Take this analogy and apply it to us. They understood, you and I should understand, that what Jesus has done and what Jesus has purchased and what Jesus has won is ours. It's been given to us. See, amen. He's given all of it to us. So I know that Jesus or that God will rescue me because he has rescued Jesus and what has been given to Jesus has been credited to my account. So do you know that you know that you know those things that we just talked about? We got to go. Verse 7, he says, I'm not going to boast in chariots. Some people boast in in chariots and horses, but we will trust, trust or boast in the name of the Lord. This verse assumes that we're trusting in something and all of us are. We're boasting about something all of us are. I really think that we trust in ourselves first and foremost. Trusting ourselves is not unfamiliar to anybody in here. When we go through a hard time, our natural inclination, I could write on a piece of paper. As a matter of fact, I need to do this one day. I'm going to write on a piece of paper one time the six or seven steps that you're going to take the next time you go through something hard. And I'm going to put it in an envelope and seal it and give it to you. And then you're going to open it when it's done and tell me if you didn't walk through that pattern. Here's one of the things you're going to do. Hard things come your way. Time of trouble comes. The enemy comes and attacks you. One of the first things everybody does is retreat. Is pull back. Isolate. Pull away from people. Okay? All of us do this. All right. Some of it's self-defensive, some of it's shame-based, some of it's just bad theology, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we all tend to pull back just a little bit because I also think we ultimately believe I'm going to pull my resources in and get my way out of this. I'm smart enough. I have enough stuff in my life. I've got enough good knowledge that I can figure my way out of this. I will work hard to get through this time and find my way out because we trust ourselves. We boast and trust in ourselves. Horses and chariots, they're just external tools that we use and that we choose to use because we think that we can rescue ourselves. So what are you actively trusting in right now? What are you actively trusting in right now? Where have you placed your faith? Where have you placed your trust? Some of us have misplaced our trust to our spouse, to our children, to jobs, to health. All kinds of things. We're mistrusting certain things. There are horses. There are our chariots. We're trusting those. What are you trusting in? The last part of that verse, verse 7, it says, We will trust. I want to change that. Boast and trust that can be interchangeable here. We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Would you say that out loud with me? We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Can you say it one more time? We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. If you want it to be real personal, you say I. 
I will trust in the name of the Lord my God. Man, how many times yesterday did you need to say that to yourselves? Just yesterday. Man, I will trust in the name of the Lord my God. I'm not going to trust in me. I'm not going to trust in him. I'm not going to trust in them. I'm going to trust in the name of the Lord my God. He's trusting. There are eight big requests that he makes in this text. I wish we had time to go through it. But he asks, answer me, protect me, which is really interesting because he says, may the God of Jacob. Jacob was a fool and a stealer and a thief. He doesn't say the name of Israel, which is really interesting. God, the God of Jacob, which I think basically they're saying, even when I'm not doing what I'm supposed to, (laughs) right? God, hear me, protect me, help me, support me. Here's what I want to say about praying for support. God is all about, we talked about big stuff. He's also about little things. There's a story in the Old Testament about a guy who borrows an axe and the axe head flies off and falls into the river or a pond or something, water, and he can't find it. And he's got to, you got to make legal reparations when you borrowed somebody's stuff and you didn't give it back to them the way you got it or in better condition. He had to make legal reparations for that. He's a poor man. He had to borrow an axe. He didn't have any way to make reparations. Man of God walks by and he says, hey, can you help me out here? The axe head floated. It comes to the top, and the man repairs the axe. There's a woman in the Old Testament, a widow with a child, and she doesn't have enough money to buy oil for her lamp. What happens? That oil never runs dry. You understand what I'm saying, guys? God cares about your little things. God cares about your small things. And in this this verse, this, this passage that we've read, there's a prayer specifically, God, support me. And that idea of support is, God, give me these little things that I need to kind of get by. Support me, help me, protect me, all these things. The shoes of the Israelites didn't wear out in the wilderness for 40 years. Their shoes didn't wear out. God rules in the material world, people. He rules the material world. Do you understand that? Stock markets, bank accounts, jobs, paychecks, everything. It's his. He rules in that world just as surely as he rules everywhere else, and he will help you. He will always, always come to your help. God says, trust me. What's interesting is the word for trust and the word for remember are the same word in Hebrew. So at the beginning of it, we're saying, God, don't you remember me? And the end of it, God's saying, don't you trust me? God is calling for our trust. Trusting God is remembering everything he is, everything he's done. So at the end of it all, we'll see this is a a psalm, which is a song of celebration. It's a song of joy. And it is a reminder that when we fall into troubled times, it's a song for help. It's really a song for both. They would sing this psalm to celebrate victories, but they would also sing this song when they went up against impossible enemies. They sang it in both occasions. It was a song that did both for them. It covered both ends of the spectrum. And hopefully... This kind of an idea would be the same thing for you and for me, that we would pray these prayers to God when we need him to help us, but also to praise him. I know that God will save. Amen? Because bow your heads, close your eyes. So here we are at the end. You're going to say, some of you are going to say, save me. God, save me. I'm going to echo this prayer because this is the way it ends. Save, O Lord. Save, O Lord. And some of you need to pray that. Save me. My enemy, God, it looks like the enemy is winning and evil and everything that's against me. God, it just owns me. Save me. And some of you would just need to take a step back to the beginning and your prayer needs to be like, save me from my sin. Like for real, God, save me. I'm dying. And if I died, I don't know where I would go. Matter of fact, I think I would not be with you forever. Save me. And some of us, we need to kind of end in that place where it says, I'm going to trust in the name of the Lord. Some are going to trust in chariots. Some are going to trust in horses. Some are going to trust in themselves. I will trust in the name of the Lord. God, change our heart to be yours, to understand you, God, to trust in you when we rather not trust in you, when we think you've forgotten us, God. Help us to trust in you. Change our heart, God, to see you like this God who saves us all the time. You save Jesus, you're going to save us. Whether that's through death, 
through the valley of the shadow of death, into death, past death, to the other side, or from death, you will save. You will rescue. You always do. Answer us. Support us. Protect us. Help us. Remember us. Give to us what we need. And then some of you, I want to encourage you right now. Who do you need to pray for? That's their day of trouble. It's not your day of trouble. It's theirs. And the enemy is against them. Their adversary is attacking them. There's this spiritual battle that's happening right now. And you know it. They don't, but you do. Can you pray that prayer for them? God, answer these prayers. God, support them. God, protect them. God, help them. God, remember them. God, give to them what they need. Father, hear these prayers. We want to echo everything that's said in this psalm. Hear our prayers, Father, for the day of trouble, the day of trouble that's on us. And then, Father, we praise you that you save, that you always remember, that you always rescue. We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Would you say it one more time? We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Amen.